Fred, now very old and weak, was at home in bed dining. He smelled the aroma of his favorite chocolate chip cookies baking. He wanted one last cookie before he died. Oh, how he loved them. He fell rolling out of bed, crawled to the landing, painfully slid one step at a time down the stairs. He crawled into the kitchen where his wife was busily baking her justly famous cookies. With waning strength, he drug himself to the table. Fred was just barely able to lift his withered arm to the cookie sheet as he grasped a warm, moist chocolate chip cookie, his absolute favorite. His wife suddenly whacked his hand with a spatula. Why? With nearly his last breath, he whispered, Why did you do that? They're for the funeral, she replied. <laughs> Why is it people we know best seem to get the least respect? Back when I was just getting into business, into the business community, in an effort to do everything right, I read a number of negotiating books. My favorite story is the one about the world's greatest negotiator. And he really was. Uh, he's the one who negotiated the Gary Powers Exchange. They've actually made movies about that, if you've not seen it. He's done tons of hostage negotiations, etc., etc. So, so in an effort to illustrate this issue we're going to talk about, he wrote this in his book about his coming back from a highly successful, highly public negotiation. I can remember it. Maybe you do, too. He had mediated the release of all the passengers on an airliner. No one was harmed. The hijackers even gave themselves up with his encouragement. Not a single shot was fired. No tear gas used. Just his unexcelled negotiating skills. And oh, he knew he was good. <laughs> his family picked him up at the airport. And he freely admitted he was still flying high, man. World's greatest negotiator. But he missed something. His wife, you see, was still tense because she had watched on live TV as the man with the gun pointed it at her husband while angrily shouting in a language she didn't understand, by the way. Now, beyond her love for him, she truly wondered if he died, what would happen to her and the kids? His kids couldn't figure out where their dad cared so little about them as to risk his life and their future happiness for a bunch of strangers. So before he had gotten much further than the exit to the airport parking lot, he had gotten into an argument with and alienated every member of his own family. The world's greatest negotiator did not impress those closest to him. And it isn't just us. People today who are like this, it's amazing when you think about it, but a similar thing happened to Jesus just after he raised a little girl from the dead. He went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. 
what is it in our fallen human nature that causes us to belittle or even despise those whom we know best? I mean, why is anything imported of greater value than its domestic equivalent? It's simply true. We'll drive a hundred miles to hear someone with a pleasant foreign accent, but find it tough to drive five miles to listen to a friend or family member drone on. And Queen Victoria was right. Familiarity really does breed contempt. Well, for the last few months, we've been looking at Paul's letter to the Philippian church. We've discovered that they really, really wanted him to come to them. He's the big name apostle who's toured the Roman Empire. But knowing that was unlikely, they'll take Timothy. (laughs) And he is, after all, Paul's right-hand man. And he, too, is famous throughout the empire. But they don't get Paul. They're not even going to get Timothy. No, Paul is sending back to them Epaphroditus, a Philippian local yokel. (laughs) And he knows they won't be impressed. (laughs) If Paul doesn't do something, they probably will not pay attention to Epaphroditus. Likely won't even respect him. He's just Epaphroditus. They've known him since he was in diapers. Okay? So Paul includes in his letter a little note to straighten them out. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So, receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Well, we need to look at the fact that Epaphroditus was sent, that Paul called him his brother, his fellow worker, his fellow soldier, that Epaphroditus is their messenger and minister to Paul's needs. He has been longing for them and concerned because they have worried about him. Then we'll talk about what it means to rejoice at seeing him and to receive him in Jesus' name. And last, to honor him. All this, even though he's only one of them. Maybe especially because he is one of them. So first, Epaphroditus was sent. Um, Duh. (laughs) Obviously, Paul is sending him to them. That's kind of more than clear. Why does he mention it? You see, they had no postal service like we have. So almost certainly Epaphroditus delivered the letter himself. So clearly Paul sent him, sent him back, you see is the point. Before Paul sent Epaphroditus to them, they sent him to Paul. And we're not talking about a casual stroll in the park. Listen to the letter that Paul will write. Uh, Later in the letter Paul will write, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. We used to support a missionary, a single woman, in a tiny country of Burundi. Didn't even know it existed. Had to look it up to find it. But we didn't mail a check. <laughs> we couldn't use wire transfer because, well, it was both very expensive and not guaranteed. The banks <clears throat> there don't have uh, strict oversight, to say the least, that ours do. And there's a lot of corruption over there. 
We had to send cash, good old American dollar bills, with whomever was traveling that way. It's a little nerve-wracking for us. And it's downright scary for the one carrying the funds because the bad guys over there know that people carry cash like that. The bad guys. Okay. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson went on a camping trip. After a good meal, they laid down for the night and went to sleep. Some hours later, Holmes woke and nudged his faithful friend, Watson, look up and tell me what you see. Watson replied, I see millions and millions of stars. What does that tell you? Watson pondered for a minute. Astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies, potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, I deduce that the time is approximately a quarter past three. Theologically, I can see that God is all-powerful and that we are small and insignificant. Meteorologically, I suspect that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. What does it tell you? Elementary, my dear Watson, someone has stolen our tent. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, people steal things. And they don't much care what they do to those they steal from. The entire world was like that in the first century with the added difficulty of very long travel times, thus being exposed to disreputable people to a much greater degree, as well as to the many rampant diseases for which there was almost no medicines. Epaphroditus must have seemed to them, at the time, the perfect person to send on this perilous quest. They trusted him then. Paul is trying to get them to trust him now, but in a more important way. So Paul starts by calling Epaphroditus his brother, my brother. Paul often used the term brother of other men of God. In fact, he is already and will again in this letter use it of the very Philippian believers to whom he's writing. What may not be clear to our modern Western minds is that the sibling relationships of the first century Mediterranean world were far closer than anything we normally experience in these 50 states. For the most part, it was considerably a stronger bond than even marital unions. When Paul uses this term for other believers, he's calling for a union far beyond what we might at first think. He's saying to them, Epaphroditus is one with whom my life is intertwined. And since you too are my brothers, your lives should be inextricably intertwined with his. But he's even more than that. He's a fellow worker with Paul. Paul reserved this term for those who actually worked in ministry with him. In other words, fellow workers had a purpose. To the Thessalonian church, Paul had sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. To establish and exhort. That's their purpose. Which means Timothy was a pastor. Epaphroditus may or may not have been one when they sent him to Paul, but he is now. Just as Apollos was. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And for Paul, these men were of more than great importance. To the Colossian church, he wrote about five uh, other Jewish men who had become believers in Jesus Christ. He said, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. It is lonely work being Jesus' apostle to the Gentiles. 
And it was comforting for Paul to know that he could trust these men of like race and faith and training with the care of the churches. Before we leave this subject, we just look briefly at what John the Apostle wrote to the young Gaius, who had cared for traveling preachers of the gospel. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they were, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Now, John uses words very differently than Paul, but it's that final point we don't want to miss. Everyone who helps someone spread the good news of Jesus Christ is a fellow worker with them. Come back to this point. Fellow workers for Christ. But let's go back with Paul as he intensifies his description of our hero. Epaphroditus was a fellow soldier. Now consider what Paul wrote to another warrior for Christ Jesus. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. The Christ worker as soldier is a common motif of Paul's. So let's consider what he said here to Timothy. The privilege, which it was a great privilege at that time, of being a soldier is mixed with a certain amount of suffering. You don't get to have one without the other. A person who works in the ministry is also going to suffer in the ministry. A person so honored must be focused on the task at hand, not entangled in civilian pursuits. Why? To please the one who enlisted him. In Timothy's and our case, that would be Jesus Christ. Now, since athletic prowess is often related to military might, Paul switches to that metaphor to point out that a fellow soldier must have integrity. Living by Christian creed, doctrine, is the only way to please the one who enlisted us and thus lead to our being crowned by him. And that is precisely what is to be expected. Those who work hardest will receive the greatest reward. And such should be the case in this life, even if the hard worker is just a local yokel. <laughs> and now... Okay, now comes one of the more interesting points of Paul's description of Epaphroditus. He is their messenger, Paul says. You know, messenger doesn't sound all that interesting, but bear with me. Now, normally, when speaking or writing in that ancient Greek language, one would use a specific word for messenger. Our English word, angel, comes straight from the Greek. Angels were usually bringing messages from God to humans, so they were normally called messengers. Greek word, angels. But Paul doesn't use that word of their messenger. No, he uses a word usually translated apostle, a sent one. It is of interest that Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus in every one of his letters, except for the tiny personal letter to Philemon, and this letter to the Philippians. And yet here, in this letter, he breaks from his normal pattern and calls Epaphroditus their apostle. In all his letters, Paul uses this word 29 times to refer to himself 
or the other apostles of Jesus Christ. Only five times did he use it in a different way. Except for this one in Philippians, all of them are in 2 Corinthians. Once for the brothers who were messengers of the churches, three times he speaks of false apostles of Jesus. We'll talk more about those men another time. For now, realize that the only person Paul ever refers to individually as an apostle, beyond the apostles specifically sent by Christ Jesus, is Epaphroditus. Do you get the idea? Maybe he's pushing them along in their thoughts about this particular messenger. He also says that their messenger is a minister to his needs. The term minister was not used as a title for pastors at that time. It was still being used in its descriptive sense. as Someone who did things to help, minister to uh, another person, uh, even, even if it was at a significant cost to themselves. Paul wrote himself to the Corinthian church, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Paul had reminded the Philippian believers that Epaphroditus risked his own life for both him and for them. This was a man who was clearly willing to spend and be spent for Christ Jesus. And he was longing for them and distressed that they were worried about him. Uh, the danger of the trip had indeed taken their toll on Epaphroditus, not from robbers on the way, thankfully, but in those dread sicknesses, one of which he must have picked up as he traveled, a sickness that nearly killed him. And what was his, Epaphroditus, concern? That they were worried about him. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't want to be a cause of stress to them. Is this guy a prince among men or what? Understand that these Philippians weren't bad people. They had just fallen prey to that temptation that makes us want the exotic rather than the good that's at hand. What is not easy to get over that which God has placed right in front of us. They were disappointed to have Pastor E back home. Times are tough. They want the big guns who can really help them. But Paul says, no, you don't understand. Epaphroditus is God's man for you. Epaphroditus was his brother fellow worker, fellow soldier, messenger, and minister, and he longed for and was concerned for them. <sighs> okay. Epaphroditus was God's man for the flipping church. And there were three things they needed to get straight. First, they needed to rejoice at seeing him, even though he's just a local guy. <laughs> Times are tough, people. Rejoice in what God has done for you. Quit worrying about what you think you need God to do for you. Who you think God needs to bring your way. Rejoice. Paul writes joy or rejoice 14 times in this small letter. Twice in this instruction alone. And there may be a reason for this. We need to find reasons to joy in those whom God has brought into our lives. Second, after rejoicing in seeing him, they are to receive him. Now that doesn't mean, hey, welcome back, Big E. <laughs> Paul was well aware of Jesus' teaching, as were they. Whoever receives you receives me. 
And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Remember John's teaching about being a fellow worker simply by helping out that person working for Christ? Paul is saying to them, back this guy up. Give him his cold cup of water or whatever he needs. This church right here, our little church, supports more people doing the work of God than most churches twice our size. I don't know if you know that. We're doing right. And and God will be faithful to reward us. So keep up the good work. And okay, I know, I, I am inordinately proud of you guys. You can just ask the pastors that I meet with. They get tired of me. <laughs> I believe the Philippian church did what was right too. They did receive Epaphroditus just as they were supposed to. And they honored him. Let's visit again. A teaching of Jesus. When you were invited by someone to a wedding feast, those were big deals back then, Do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Epaphroditus was one who humbled himself. Maybe that's one of the reasons Paul was afraid they'd think too little of our brother. Because he had so humbled himself that they didn't realize his capabilities. They hadn't taken the time or effort to really get to know him. I bet you've heard the expression, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. (laughs) There sure seems to be a lot of people who squeak. Uh, They demand to be recognized for what an important contribution they make in your life. Can we be clear that this is not the proper way to gain honor? And we should not give honor to anyone who seeks it in that way. Now, don't misunderstand. All believers should love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Love even those who aren't getting it right. <laughs> Give honor to all that you possibly can. Okay, well, what does that mean? To honor someone is to see them as valuable, precious. Here's an example. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Okay, that's the example. Jesus is chosen and precious to the Father. The word precious is the same Greek word that Paul used in telling the Philippians to honor Epaphroditus, regard him as highly valuable, like a precious, priceless jewel. That's how much we should outdo each other in honoring our fellow believers. Don't put them down. Build them up. Honor them. For sure, if they are making themselves ready to do God's work. 
Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Or how about, how about this very practical teaching? Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Regard as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Are you willing to honor that rotten boss? <laughs> that you have just so that you can, just so that he will maybe not say bad things about Christians and about what we teach? And then, here's this ultimately popular one. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman. Now, I know he goes on to say, as the weaker vessel. But that's only to point out our greater need to honor them. Just because women tend to be physically less strong does not mean that they should not be honored as greatly as men. Can we make the leap to other things? Just because someone is not as talented as we are doesn't mean that they are less, they, they do less honor. Just because they are smarter, richer, better looking, whatever, they don't deserve more honor and we don't deserve less. Well, let's go on and we'll look at the end of that last verse. The one we just did. Because maybe it applies to all these situations as well. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Honor others who are heirs with you of eternal life. Honor others so that your prayers will not be hindered. Do you think maybe when Paul said earlier to these folks, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Maybe it's related to this whole honoring thing. But Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is something else. He's something more. He is, as we saw, a pastor. He's usually called an elder back then. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Paul says when someone serves the church in this way, make an extra effort. You can imagine it's a little embarrassing for me to point this out since I'm an elder of this church and I labor in preaching and teaching. No, it helps me when I realize there's a benefit for both those honoring and the one being honored. Think of it this way. There's a sense in which we are to be seeking for glory and honor. And not the way the world does. Seeking their own glory and honor. Naming buildings and other tangible things after themselves. You know, giving away money. But only if there's lots of publicity attached. Feeding the hungry when the cameras are rolling. <laughs> you know, we, we seek a different path. The one that Jesus instructed us to take. The one he took himself. We honor others. We honor others. And then what will God do? He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. The honor and glory that we seek comes with immortality. <laughs> he will give us eternal life and with it glory and honor. For he sent us to do good works to our brothers and sisters and to the world. We are fellow workers and fellow soldiers together, messengers of the good news. 
ministers to another's need. We have a longing to be with the family of God and are more concerned for them than ourselves. We rejoice at seeing them. We receive them in Jesus' name. We give them honor now as they with us await that day when our God and Father will shower us with glory and honor and immortality as he brings us into an eternal life where we can turn all glory and honor and praise back to him. And we do this even when it's not some fancy person from a foreign land, (laughs) not some super saint. We honor our brothers and sisters here, our fellow workers and soldiers, our messengers and ministers. We long for them and are concerned for them. We rejoice at seeing them and receive them in Jesus' name. We honor them even if they are just a local yokel like one of us. (laughs) Father, thank you. It's hard for us not to seek the special. It's hard for us not to want something out of our reach. But you put us together. This is not a mistake. It's exactly what you intended. We are together. We are close to one another. And we need to learn to honor one another. Uh, Not tear each other down. Not do that. Satan, ah, he will attack everything. And he tries so hard to whisper in our ears to get us to say something that we really know we're not supposed to say. (laughs) And he tries to stop us from honoring like it's somehow going to cost us something. It will cost us nothing to give away honor and will gain for us in the end because it is one of the good works we need to do. So help us as we honor each other so that the world around us sees that and they wonder at it and they're amazed at the love that we have for one another, the real active love, not based on feelings, but based on the truth of your word. Help us to love one another and honor one another and care for one another and minister to one another. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message first heard at Living Hope Church of Westport. Please feel free to visit us online at southbeachhope.org. We are so pleased that we could worship with you via sermon.net, but hopefully we'll someday be able to praise God together in person, if not in Westport, at least in the rapture. <laughs>